You're listening to the Carleton University Political Science Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Political Science at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. I'm Asif Amit, one of the PhD students of the program. So far from God, so close to the United States. Pafirio Diaz's infamous words describing Mexico's relationship with the U.S. in many ways still rings true today. Whether through economic integration, the war on drugs, or even the steady stream of bodies and dollars moving across their shared border, the social, political, and economic fate of Mexico remains as tied to its neighbors to the north today as it did in those early days following the Mexican Revolution over a century ago. Now, over the years, that relationship has seen its fair share of crests and waves, with the presidency of Donald Trump heralding a potential low point in terms of its discursive construction of its North American neighbor as a threat, as well as its physical construction of a wall to keep out so-called bad hombres from the U.S. In many ways, Mexico marked the first and arguably the most consistent victim of the Trumpian vision of America first. And though we're a year removed from the end of that vision, one can't help but wonder just what the Biden administration's vision for a return to an American-led liberal international order means for its Mexican neighbors and the North American continent more broadly. How has America's back changed U.S.-Mexican relations? What are Mexico's developmental prospects under the newly revised CUSMA agreement? And what role will Canada, that often overlooked third amigo, play in Mexico's future political and economic prospects? To discuss these questions and more, I'm joined this week by Professor Laura McDonald. Dr. McDonald is a professor with the Department of Political Science here at Carleton and a prolific specialist in the politics of Latin America and North America, as well as democracy and civil society. Professor McDonald, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, it's great to be here. So, Porfirio Diaz once famously remarks, so far from God, so close to the U.S., to describe the relationship between Mexico and the United States. And just to begin, I was wondering if you could speak on American-Mexican relations from a historic standpoint. How's that relationship evolved over time? Well, it's certainly been rocky and difficult uh, over time, and it sort of started out badly in that um, uh, in the 19th century, there was a war between Mexico and the United States, the so-called Mexican-American War, um, or in Spanish, it's uh, translated as the War of the North American Intervention, in which um, Mexico lost about half of its territory to the United States under uh, expansionist policies by the president at that time, James Polk, um, who was motivated by the doctrine of manifest destiny and trying to expand his political base by expanding into Mexico. So that was not a great way to start out the relationship. Um, and I think Mexicans ever since have understandably been uh, resentful or suspicious or um, uh, afraid of the United States and its um, possible intentions towards them and their territory. Since then, um, it's been <laughs> more positive than an actual war but there have been many rough points through uh, US-Mexican history, um, as well as moments of rapprochement. But um, I think the relationship is best summarized by the title of a book by uh, former New York Times correspondent, Alan Riding, who 
whose title was Distant Neighbors, that they're right beside each other, but there's um, distinct historical, cultural, and economic uh, um, policies and uh, traditions that separate the two countries. Um, and so it's a very different relationship between uh, the US and Mexico than we see between the US and Canada, for example. So, um, you know, things improved under um, FDR when he was president, there was a, a policy adopted of, um, of trying to um, get along with Latin American countries rather than to completely impose US um, will for, uh, through military intervention and so forth. So that was called the good neighbors policy uh, that was applied towards Latin America in general. Um, and in that period, Mexico, uh, after its revolution, was able to adopt a number of, of um, more nationalist economic policies, including nationalization of the oil industry and other types of policies of economic um, intervention in the economy that reduced uh, the economic role of the United States in Mexico and um, and and kind of led to a, a happier uh, relationship. Uh, but this shifted again in the early 80s when uh, Mexico went through a big economic crisis, uh, the, the so-called uh, Latin American debt crisis and a number of uh, neoliberal structural adjustment policies were imposed on Mexico, which was one of the major debtors that had gone into crisis as well as other Latin American countries. Um, so many uh, Mexicans would perceive that as uh, a major uh, imposition of US interests through its uh, control over the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank um, that led Mexico to adopt uh, neoliberal policies that did not benefit the majority of their population. Um, and so while some elites uh, were very enthusiastic about these policies in Mexico, uh, I would say the majority of the, the population was, um, was uh, upset about these um, types of economic policies. And on top of that, you have the long uh, standing um, conflicts over immigration policy. Um, so um, some Mexicans like to say because of this history of, of uh, US intervention in Mexico that the border uh, they didn't cross the border, the border crossed them because the border was redrawn to uh, take away much of uh, the southern, what is now the southern US um, that was once Mexico's and uh, placed in American hands with many uh, Mexican Americans remaining in place. Um, and there's a bit, there was a historical tendency towards a pattern of circular migration between Mexico and the US where uh, Mexicans would uh, move temporarily to the US to work in the harvest and other industries and then return home. And, and that was a longstanding pattern that benefited really both sides since uh, the United States needed Mexican labor. But the polit politicization of the immigration issue in the US has um, harmed Mexicans and uh, has been a long-standing irritant between the United States and Mexico. So there are all kinds of reasons for uh, Mexicans to um, distrust the U.S. and, to, and that uh, make it difficult for the two countries to uh, establish friendly cooperative relations. 
You mentioned briefly Canada there, and that's something I actually want to pick up on because similar to Diaz, Pierre Trudeau once famously remarked to living next to its southern neighbors, being akin to sleeping next to an elephant. U.S.-Canadian relations is a pretty robust area of scholarship, but it feels as though not enough is really written about that other continental relationship in North America between Canada and Mexico. How have Canadian-Mexican relations been conceived over time, and where do they stand today? Yes, so I guess if you could say uh, the US and Mexico are distant neighbors, Canada and Mexico are even more distant neighbors. And while we haven't had the same um, enmities and uh, you know, conflicts that we've seen between the US and Mexico, we, haven't also, we also haven't seen a real um, warming up of the relationship um, over time for various reasons. Um, so, you know, there have been attempts by various Canadian uh, governments to try to um, cooperate more with Mexico and establish closer economic relations in particular. So Trudeau, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, um, as part of his uh, third option policy of trying to uh, diversify Canadian trade relations did um, travel to Mexico and he himself was quite sympathetic to Mexico. Um, and Latin America in general because of his Quebecois heritage. Traditionally, Quebecers have, um, have had more involvement with Mexico and uh, their cultural similarities, if you will, through their shared uh, Catholic uh, traditions and uh, Latin languages have often uh, led to a closer relationship. Um, many Quebec missionaries uh, went to Mexico and further south. Um, but but that um, third option policy didn't really pay off in terms of intensified uh, trade relations. Um, and, um, you know, I think there's been a reluctance of Canadian businesses to get too involved in Mexico uh, when they have the United States right next door, which has the same language and culture, more or less. And, um, uh, you know, similar kinds of political institutions. Uh, so the so the U.S. market has always seemed to be the easier alternative than venturing out into other uh, markets where they might have to learn another language or uh, you know deal with people of a different color. So I think there's been kind of a you know a, not xenophobic but kind of narrow perspective on the part of Canadian businesses and governments that they're they're not. Um, interested in, in uh, deepening the relationship with Mexico um, when they have the United States there that's uh, much perceived as much easier to deal with for whatever reason. So um, the Harper government also um, uh, tried to uh, establish a, um, a policy of deepening relations with Latin America um, and uh, did so in a more consistent way than probably any other government, but uh, their, their focus was really on trade relations and economic relations. Um, and so um, I think there too, the relationship didn't really flourish. Um, so um, I think over time, you know, there has been a, a building up of the expertise in Canada in the diplomatic corps. There's more understanding of of Latin America in general and Mexico, particularly more people have been going to Mexico, you know, um, a million or so Canadian tourists go to Mexico every year. 
there's increasing number of Mexican migrants in Canada. Um, more people speak Spanish than in the past. <clears throat> so, you know, I think the basis has been laid for deepening that relationship. And I'm hopeful that we will see this happening under the current government. I can't help but ask about the previous administration in the US, just because so much of the Trump administration was steeped in anti-Mexico rhetoric. You mm -hmm. can't help but think of examples like the wall, the whole bad hombres thing, or the supposed need to tear up NAFTA. And I was just wondering, what was the impact of the Trump administration on US-Mexico relations? Did it mark a kind of critical juncture in that relationship, or was Trump more of the same in some way? Yeah, I mean, I would say there is some continuity for sure in, uh, in U.S. Uh, policies towards Mexico uh, from previous administrations under Trump. Um, so, so Trump's uh, nationalist and um, anti-migrant policies certainly are not nothing new in, in the United States, although he took them to an, a new level, especially in rhetorical terms, his um, horrible racist uh, rhetoric. Uh, certainly angered and alienated Mexicans from the United States in a way that you didn't see under earlier presidents. Although, you know, earlier they were, there were state level policies in Arizona and earlier in California uh, to restrict immigrants. And there were, there was uh, decades of trying to build fences and um, keep out Mexican migrants through various uh, methods, including military deterrence and surveillance at the border. So all of that is not new. And Trump was um, uh, cleverly picking up in that, on that tendency in US politics uh, towards uh, trying to demonize Mexicans and um, you know, blame them for any problems that the United States might be facing despite the fact that, as I said, the, the US economy does rely heavily on um, Mexican labor and, and the Mexican economy in general is, is, a, is a benefit to, to the United States. Um, so I don't know, something like 85% of the labor in, uh, in the agricultural fields in, um, in uh, California is made up of undocumented Mexican migrants. Um, but as I said, the, I think the rhetoric was, was new and more intense and more hostile, and that did alienate uh, Mexico, Mexico and Mexicans um, very strongly. On the other hand, you know, Mexican administrations don't have a lot of choice but to try to cooperate with the United States. And we do see the new president who's come to office, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, who is the first leftist president elected in Mexico. Uh, pretty much ever, um, uh, but he is also a populist like Trump, a left populist, not a right populist, and he um, he has done his best to try to get along with both the Trump and the Biden administration because Mexico just has too much to lose if they if they um, speak out forcefully against what Trump was doing. So for example, uh, when Trump decided to uh, renegotiate NAFTA, both the previous president um, and the current one just, I would say, sort of caved on a lot of US demands rather than standing up forcefully for Mexican interests because they felt that the, the primary imperative was to 
is to uh, renew that trade agreement rather than seeing it ripped up and, and all the attendant economic insecurity and uncertainty that that would unleash on the Mexican economy, which has become extremely dependent on the US market. So it's a mixed bag. Um, uh, but I, I certainly I think, um, you know, the, the, the end of the Trump administration and hopefully not the return of the that which will hopefully not return means that we're in a better context now for a more constructive relationship. Glad you mentioned NAFTA there because that was something I wanted to bring up. You know, the shift towards the Cosmo is something that dominated headlines during the Trump administration. Particularly, it became part of the America First doctrine in important ways. And you know, a lot has been said about NAFTA, both good and bad, in terms of its social, political, and economic impacts on Mexico. But how are those prospects changing under Cosmo? Is there any change whatsoever with it? Yeah, I, I, there's a lot of continuity between NAFTA and COSMA for all, um, all uh, Trump's rhetoric about how terrible the deal was. It was the worst trade deal ever, according to Trump. But uh, a lot of what we see in COSMA is very similar to NAFTA and also to the Trans-Pacific Partnership deal uh, that uh, Trump did pull out of. Um, so there's a lot of continuity. Much of it is, is very much the same. But um, in general, uh, the U.S. did go into those talks um, with a very um, forceful um, uh, uh, um, approach, um, determined to promote U.S. interests, and um, the Mexicans weren't in a position really to stand up to them. So I'd say Mexico fared the worst in those negotiations. Canada got to protect something it was very interested in, which was the dispute settlement mechanism. Um, and um, whereas Mexico pretty much caved to US demands. And one, one of the most um, controversial elements of those are the rules of origin um, uh, uh, elements of the deal. Um, as particularly in the auto industry, which is pretty much uh, the heart of, of the NAFTA relationship or the COSMA relationship now, and uh, very central to the future of the Mexican economy. So um, uh, under US pressure, the, the three countries agreed to increase the rules of origin. So that more than of any vehicle has to be constructed uh, in North America, in the three countries of North America um, than in the past. So that discourages investment and trade with other countries, which might be in, in Mexican and Canadian interests. And um, also they imposed a, a rule that a large percentage of the vehicle has to be produced by workers earning $16 US per hour which sounds like it could be a good thing uh, for Mexicans because, hey, that might lead to increasing Mexican wages, but Mexican wages are just so far off from uh, that rate that, in fact, it, it's highly unlikely Mexicans will ever catch up to that rate of being paid $16 an hour. So in practice, it means that more uh, production will take place in the United States and Canada and less in Mexico. So I think basically Mexico got a, a bad deal out of that. Um, also the investor state dispute settlement mechanism that was in uh, the NAFTA was eliminated for Canada. 
uh, but was um, maintained in place for some um, Mexican industries, especially in the energy sector. Um, and so that mechanism allows corporations to sue governments if they're perceived as um, um, uh, harming or damaging their profits um, in some way, uh, for example, through environmental regulations and so forth. So, so Canada um, ended up uh, not having that mechanism in the New Deal, whereas Mexico does. On the other hand, I'm very optimistic about another um, aspect of the New Deal, which, um, which the Trump administration did promote, which is, uh, as, as well as the Canadian government, was a strong promoter of the new chapter on labor rights, um, which was also promoted by the Democrats in Congress as, as, a, as a sort of deal breaker if they were going to um, approve the deal. So the, the new labor chapter um, enshrines uh, labor rights um, into the deal itself, as opposed to the old NAFTA in which labor rights were a side accord. Um, and basically that difference means that now those rights are enforceable through normal trade sanctions. Um, whereas in the past um, under NAFTA, they were just sort of, you know, they could be, they could lead to discussions between the two countries, but they were really basically unenforceable and, and toothless. Um, so they were sort of added on to make the deal look better than it would be otherwise for, for workers without really changing anything for workers. So there's hope that um, this chapter could be used to strengthen labor rights in Mexico, which would over time lead to a gradual increase in, in Mexican wages and also um, create more democratic trade union movement. Um, the current trade union movement the dominant tendency of that is very corrupt and uh, tied to both the state and to employers. Workers uh, don't know uh, what's in their collective agreements. They never get a chance to see their collective agreements. They don't have um, uh, fair elections to elect their own union representatives. They're just imposed on them. So that's a very positive element of the New Deal. Um, and we've already seen um, uh, contract being overturned in a General Motors plant in Silao, Guanajuato. Um, uh, so, uh, and a deal, actually, there's going to be an election, I think, this week um, in that plant uh, where workers will get to elect their own representation. So, that's a very positive move. But that's, it's going to take years to play out because the uh, so called official uh, trade union uh, confederacy is so strongly uh, embedded in Mexican society and in um, and in uh, production sites across the country. So again, there there are um, some positive elements of the New Deal, but mostly it's it's sort of more of the same. So I just want to pivot towards talking about the current Biden administration because we're now a year in to Joe Biden's America's Back doctrine of foreign policy. And as much as it's centered around this idea of a return to the liberal international order, with regards to Mexico and the three amigos of North America more broadly, how has the Biden administration approached relations with its neighbors? And has this approach been working? Um, I think we've seen some moves towards uh, reestablishing more uh, normal, friendly relations uh, between the three countries. And the main sign of that was the North American Leaders Summit, which took place 
in November uh, of 2021. Um, and that summit hadn't taken place for, I believe, five years before that point um, because of conflicts and disagreements between uh, both uh, the United States and Canada and the US United States and Mexico. Um, so I think it's um, really important that the three leaders have been now been able to sit down together and make some agreements to cooperate in various fields, including uh, one important element of the statement they put out was around um, trying to come up with a cooperative approach to managing migration in the region and addressing the root causes of migration from Central America, which is a major foreign policy priority of the Biden administration and the Mexican administration for that matter. So there's some um, positive changes there. I think it's an interesting moment because all three administrations are sort of generally on the left and they share some um, political priorities around uh, the use of the state to, you know, as, as the Biden administration puts it, to build back better and commitment to labor rights, also uh, commitment to progress on gender related issues. Um, both Canada and Mexico now have, uh, uh, at least rhetorically, have committed themselves to a feminist foreign policy. And, uh, and we also see some feminist uh, principles being adopted in the United States. Uh, so there's lots of room for uh, better cooperation, especially around migration issues. At the same time, um, uh, the Biden administration um, has not completely abandoned some of the approaches of the of the Trump administration um, and is uh, continues to be skeptical of some aspects of international trade. Um, they they have not um, really been there. Uh, promoting uh, return to normal of the World Trade Organization, because just like Trump, uh, Biden hasn't um, named new judges to serve on um, dispute resolution panels. So, so the WTO is not really functioning as it should. Um, and we also see um, by American policies um, adopted by the Biden administration that are not um, seen as very helpful for either Canada or, or Mexico. Um, so specifically, there's some concerns about um, elements of the, the new infrastructure bill um, that the Biden administration has trying to uh, get through Congress, the $1.75 trillion bill um, that um, would include uh, subsidies for Americans to purchase electric vehicles entirely produced in the United States. So both Canada and Mexico are not very happy about that since it seems to go against both the letter and the spirit of the renegotiated NAFTA. Um, although that bill didn't pass Congress, so we're waiting to see what's gonna happen next. Um, and Biden's likely tried it try to push ahead with, with some aspects of, of it, including environmental aspects um, that would include this um, uh, subsidy for electric vehicle production in the United States. Um, and then there's also a concern on the part of both Canada and Mexico about how those rules of origin are going to be calculated and administered in the auto sector. Um, and there's some concern that um, the US is gonna try to 
interpret them in a way that is beneficial to U.S. interests and not to Canadians and Mexican uh, production. And um, there's also, you know, just concern about um, uh, the build back better policies and the America or by American policies of the Trump administration that wouldn't allow governments in the United States to procure products from the US, uh, sorry, from uh, Canada or Mexico. So um, there are a lot of common interests, especially I think around uh, climate change and, um, and labor rights and more inclusive trade policies. Um, but uh, there's also some disagreements uh, between uh, Canada and the US on the one side and Mexico on the other around uh, uh, the policies of the Mexican administration um, towards um, uh, excluding private interests from um, the oil and electrical markets. So there's still irritants and disagreements, but at least there's a much more positive tone. Um, and I'm hopeful that with the reinstatement of the leader summit and, and other ways in which the three countries can cooperate, we will see a more positive relationship develop over time. I guess the last question I have to ask is just about your own work. I mean, you're a pillar of the community here at Carleton's <laughs> Department of Political Science. I mean, I learned comparative politics under you myself. Um, and you're a renowned scholar when it comes to issues of Latin America and the global South more broadly. And I'm just curious, you know, what are you working on these days? Tell us about your work. Thanks. So um, like many scholars, uh, my work has um, met some um, obstacles in the context of the COVID pandemic. Um, uh, I did receive a large um, SHRC grant from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada to carry out a five-year study of the role of transnational activism in North America, focusing on uh, labor rights, migrant rights, and um, human rights in Mexico. Um, and I have uh, co-investigators and collaborators in uh, the United States and Mexico, as well as Canada. And we're supposed to be doing interviews with civil society activists in the three countries uh, to look at what role transnational uh, cooperation plays in promoting those, um, those uh, important areas of, of rights. Uh, but we haven't been able to carry out uh, all the interviews that we were supposed to take um, or, or that we were supposed to carry out over the last couple of years. So, um, uh, uh, so that's been uh, not entirely put on hold, but um, we haven't been able to make the pro progress we would have liked, but I'm hoping in the coming year, I'll be able to um, actually travel to the US and Mexico and carry out some interviews or we'll do more on Zoom. So that's sort of my main research project. Um, uh, in the meantime, I've also been involved in some um, activism. I um, was invited to participate in a group of uh, Canadian civil society feminist organizations that have been um, uh, working with the Canadian government to uh, develop it, uh, the details of its feminist foreign policy agenda. So we uh, were contracted by Global Affairs Canada to carry out consultations 
with uh, individuals and civil society organizations. So we're waiting to see under the new uh, Canadian minister whether they're gonna announce that policy soon. So I'm hopeful about that. I was also asked to be part of the um, International Advisory Committee by UNIFOR, uh, the, um, the large Canadian union that um, represents most auto workers in Canada. They receive funding from the Canadian government to work with Mexican counterparts to promote labor rights in Mexico. Um, so that's an exciting opportunity that's just getting started. As well, in terms of activism, I've also been uh, a member of the America's Policy Group, which is a group of uh, civil society organizations uh, that is active in Latin America, particularly around uh, human rights issues. And uh, so we've been um, working um, to influence the uh, annual human rights consultation that occurs between Canada and Mexico. Uh, which is another important area of collaboration between Canada and Mexico. So we've been uh, trying to, um, uh, well, we've been invited by Global Affairs Canada to um, speak with them about concerns that um, we and uh, partners in Mexico have about human rights in that country and to try to bring these issues uh, to the front of the agenda when uh, Canada and Mexico are having their consultation. So um, I think that's a really uh, important and interesting way in which um, civil society also can influence um, the situation in, in Mexico and, and try to promote the voices of people who aren't normally listened to, including Indigenous people, women's, women, LGBTQ partners, and so forth. And uh, I just um, am uh, about to publish uh, co-edited work on um, uh, Canada-Latin America relations that I uh, edited with my friend and colleague, Pablo Heydrich, who's in the Global and International Studies program at Carleton. And um, I also uh, co-edited with Jeremy Paltiel, who also taught you comparative politics and with David Carment in, uh, in uh, the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, we've co-edited uh, the latest version of Canada Among Nations, which is on uh, Canadian international economic policy in the context of changes in the liberal international order. So I've been busy, <laughs> but I am hoping to get to travel more and to talk to people in person. Um, to learn more about what's going on in the region and what can be done uh, by Canadians and others to promote migrant labor and human rights in general. Oh, that all sounds like such incredible stuff. You've been very prolific over the pandemic. Well done. Thank you. It's not easy. <laughs> oh, I know it. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at CU underscore PolySci on Instagram at cu underscore poly dot and on Facebook at carltonu dot poly sign.